You are listening to a Raw Collective podcast. Hello and welcome to What Matters Most, a podcast hosted by me, Antonia Preble, and my good friend, Jackie Maguire, who also happens to be a clinical psychologist. Together, we will explore everyday issues that make up the moral and cultural climate of our era, issues that have a real impact on how we experience and feel about our lives. I hope you get as much out of them as we do. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to the final episode of season one of What Matters Most. I can't quite believe we're at this point already, actually. It's been such a joy talking about all the things we've talked about so far. And Jackie and I really hope that you've got lots out of it and are eager for season two already, as we are already. (laughs) But we won't get too ahead of ourselves because today's topic actually feels quite appropriate for the last topic because it is procrastination, delaying a task or a decision, putting something off to the very last moment. (laughs) So it seems fitting that finally, at the very last moment, we are talking about this topic. So I've been interested in procrastination for a long time because I am someone who procrastinates and I just find it a really interesting thing that humans do. So I'm really looking forward to hearing Jackie's thoughts about this. So I totally understand why we delay a task or a decision that we don't want to do. Like, the dishes, the washing, things like that. That makes sense. But I find it really fascinating that we, in fact, delay tasks or decisions that we might even enjoy or that are meaningful to us or that we know are important to get to the next step in something that's important to us. And yet, a lot of us do it. And I also know that a lot of really (laughs) high-functioning, really successful people procrastinate. So I'm wondering is it as bad as its reputation suggests, or perhaps can it even be useful? So, Jackie, hello. How are you today? Kia ora. (laughs) I've arrived in a flurry, haven't I? (laughs) I'm good. I've taken some belly breaths. I'm here. I'm present. And it has been a joy working with you, Antonia, from the the bottom of my heart. It's been so lovely finding someone where we... um, where our brains just bounce off each other so well. And so it's been wonderful. And yeah, end of season one. But I'm here, I'm present, I'm ready to roll. She's here, she's present, she's ready to roll. I was just doing a long intro to procrastinate a little bit and let Jackie just (laughs) have her belly breaths. It's been one of those mornings, as we can all relate to. You're doing well, Jackie. I won't tell people that I'm still in my (laughs) pyjamas as we're having this conversation. (laughs) As the chaos of my house surrounds me. (laughs) I think that's totally fine. My hair is still wet because I I've just got out of the shower. So look, it's all a bit chaotic, but here, we're doing it. But I guess, Jackie, my first question to you is, are you someone who procrastinates? I don't think I am, actually. In terms of actual clinical research definition of procrastination, they say about 20% of the population are procrastinators, which means you have a pretty consistent pattern, which, as you mentioned in your intro, of putting things off. And the word procrastinate comes from the Latin verb procrastinare, which is actually to put off until tomorrow. What I think makes procrastination an issue when you have that long repetitive nature of putting things off till tomorrow is the impact that that causes on you. So do you put things off to the point where it can cause you significant distress 
impairment, where it impacts your work or the quality of your work, your health and well-being, your relationships, etc. So if you're somebody that nails things under pressure and it doesn't cause big impact for you, well, I don't think you actually really fall under this category of impairment from procrastination. So a small group of people will actually perform very well under pressure. A number of other people will think they perform well under pressure or will think that things take less time than they actually do, like their future prediction around how much time they're going to need to sit down and complete a task. If you're inaccurate in those predictions and then you don't nail it under pressure and it causes you major distress, then I think procrastination is an issue for you. So in a long-winded way of answering your question, I do have a tendency to do things closer to a deadline, but I think I am pretty accurate most of the time at knowing how much time I will need. I fizz and thrive a bit from the dopamine of like working hard under pressure and it doesn't cause me or my family much significant impact. If you ask my husband that question, he may tell you differently as I'm like, can you take the kids? Can you do this? I've just got something to do. But no, I don't think, Antonia, I am a procrastinator. Okay, well, that's interesting because I was talking to Dan, my partner, about procrastination last night because he's a procrastinator. And I said, I'm talking to Jackie tomorrow about procrastination. Is there anything you want to know about it? Because his mode, actually, it's changed now. Dan, let me get you some (laughs) self-help. What do you want to know from Jackie? (laughs) Yeah, that's right. It has actually changed now that we've had children and our time management has to be a lot more structured. But he's a writer and throughout his career until now, he has put things off until the last minute, until the deadline is really looming for exactly the reason that you've just said, Jackie. He sort of feels like he really thrives under that pressure environment. And actually that when the pressure's on, his brain opens up in new ways and he's able to be more creative and ultimately more efficient than he otherwise would be. But anyway, his question was, is that true or is it a fallacy? <laughs> it just seems that way because of all, everything else that's going on in that pressure cooker environment. So is it possible that your new pathways can open up in your brain when you're really under pressure? I don't actually know the answer to that question, Dan. Sorry, I'll have to go and research for you. But I do know what does happen in people's brains when they are procrastinating. So I'll just diverge into something I do know about. And Dan, I'll come back to you on that. But I suppose if you are somebody who puts things off continuously, and for most people, they do think there are many fallacies, like people get stuck in thinking traps, right? But if you think about what might be going on for someone Many professors would say that procrastination is not a time management issue. Procrastination is an emotion regulation issue. So whether that be someone goes, I'm not interested in that, I don't want to do it. Whether someone says that task is boring, I have no interest in that. If you are somebody that holds yourself to very high expectations, if you're a perfectionist, then perhaps you procrastinate because you have that feeling of low self-worth or inadequacy or just this need to control and be perfect in it. Perhaps you put off because you don't want to let other people down. Perhaps tasks are so important to you or you hold such moral value to them that you want to do them justice. So if you've got a level of expectation around it or you're just not into it 
or you're anxious or your mood is low, like any of those things can impact your motivation, how much you get stuck into a task. And so if you think about that through a lens of procrastination is not about time management, you're not lazy, something is going on emotionally for you that's preventing you from getting engaged in this task. And then if you look at the brain, and what they've found in the brain, they have found that for those that procrastinate, there may be a battle between your frontal lobe, and now your frontal lobe is your forehead. I call it your chief executive of your brain. Antonia's looking at me, put my fingers on front of my head, but you can't see that. So the front of your brain, your forehead, is where your boss of your body sits, your chief executive. That is where your higher order thinking sits. That's where your good decision making sits. That's where, you know, your ability to problem solve and all your like grown up decision making sits in your frontal lobe. Your limbic system is the old bit of your brain. Now that's in the middle of your brain and that's where emotions are regulated. So positive emotions like joy and mastery and savouring and creativity and all that good, you know, positive emotions sits there. But also fear and worry sits in your amygdala, which is your evolutionary fight or flight part of your brain. And so some neuroscientists say, is there this battle between your brain going, I've got to get this done, I've got a deadline, come on, we need to get engaged, versus your emotion part of your brain? Are they in battle? Now, what I know as a psychologist is that when you're under threat or if there is a negative emotion sitting there with you, I'm not going to be good enough, this isn't going to be perfect, do I have the skill to do this, am I in an imposter syndrome moment? You know, like if you've got a negative emotion sitting there, that will win out in the moment. You've got shortcuts to your middle of your brain, to your limbic system. It's there to help you survive, which means it's there to overtake your frontal lobe when it's in you know, high intensity. So if you're really anxious, really worried, if you're a high perfectionist, whatever it is, if your mood is really low at the time, if that is intense, it'll trump your prefrontal cortex, your CEO. Does that make sense? It really does. It makes so much sense. And I'm just thinking of examples from my own life and other people's lives that I've been privy to over the years, which really make sense of that. And I mean, I think we've probably all heard this idea before of your fight or flight response taking over other behavioral patterns in your brain. And again, for good reason, because a long time ago, we really would have to run from the lion and it would really be saving our lives. But those same lightning quick systems are still happening when in fact our actual real lives aren't in danger, but it feels like it because we're having similar amounts of fear. I used to flat with someone who I think, yeah, was experiencing quite extreme anxiety, potentially depression as well. And they were an actor and they just would never learn their lines for auditions and really wanted their career to be in a different place than it was currently. However, they'd get an audition and, you know, super excited about it and just wouldn't learn the lines until the very, very last minute and the auditions would never go well, <laughs> you know, and it was a really tricky pattern that this person was in and it really did feel like self-sabotage. They were so anxious about getting it right that they couldn't bring themselves to start and I suppose as well, if you don't really try, then there's always a bit of a crutch, isn't there? If you know you haven't done your best, then if it doesn't go your way, whatever that might mean and what you're doing, there's always a go, oh, well, 
I guess I didn't really try. So you're may perhaps cushioning yourself from that fall. So what you're describing there, I would call it a self-defeating prophecy. Yes, absolutely. Right? Or self-sabotage. Yeah. As you, my, my words are self-defeating. And see, as you tell that story, I think of someone that used to be very close to me that was very talented and very skilled but had very poor self-esteem. And so they were studying for a new career and they just wouldn't try hard in their assignments. They'd procrastinate, they'd put it off, amazingly intelligent, but wouldn't engage in that work. And same thing, if I feel shit about myself inside and then I don't actually sit and commit to do the task, then I'm going to protect myself in the long run of actually trying really hard and discovering that I'm not good, right? Like if I try really hard and if I submit my project to my manager, if I complete that university assignment, if I go out and attempt to you know, start a business that I'm passionate about. Like if I never actually engage in it, then I'm protecting myself from failing or I'm protecting myself from really showing me that my fear of not being good enough isn't true. Procrastination can come from so many different angles, right? That's why on the surface, I think people hear this topic and they're like, yeah, just give me some time management. (laughs) Just give me some time management tips, you know. Tell me to start chunking my work or tell me to start one step at a time. You know, yeah, those skills are useful, right? But actually what is sitting beneath your procrastination? Is it worry and fear? Is it low self-worth? Is it, you know, and there are some positives to procrastination. We might get there, Antonia. Um, But, you know, like, can you really look under the hood and say, what the heck is going on here? What is driving that? And like every discussion we've had, self-awareness becomes pivotal, right? If you know what's going on for you, you can address it. You can avoid what you need and invest in what you want to. You can try and manage those emotions. You can try and heal what needs to be healed, whatever that is, you know, but if you know it, you can do something about it. Yeah. Is it possible to be an unconscious procrastinator? Like, is it possible to really not recognize that that's what's going on in your life? And you might have self-talk like, oh yeah, I do just have bad time management issues, or I'm just too busy, as opposed to being really aware of, oh, I'm putting this off and I probably shouldn't. I think people know that they're putting it off. I think that that is conscious, that you know it's going to cause you like pain in the long run. So I think there is definitely awareness that the put off to tomorrow may have short-term benefits, long-term pain. I think people are very aware of that. I'm sure what many people are unaware of is why they're doing it. Mm-hmm. I see. Just to finish my neuroscience, because I only got a third of the way through. Oh, sorry. Sorry. <laughs> so, so, <laughs> We've got no, more no, to talk about there. Just, <laughs> well, just full circle, just to make sure that I'm being credible in my role here as the clinical psychologist. So one is that battle between your chief executive, your frontal cortex, and your old limbic system. Another group of research says actually maybe people that procrastinate have larger amygdalas. So amygdala is that fight or flight centre. So if you looked at a neuroscan, are their amygdalas larger? And this would link to your flatmate, right? If it's an anxiety issue, a larger amygdala being your survival system means that you're more hypervigilant. You have more probably fear-based thoughts, more worry. Your amygdala is there to keep you alive. And so what it will do is go and soak up all the negative, awful stuff around you because it thinks it's trying to protect you and help you. Your thinking turns more negative when you're anxious. When your amygdala is activated, you start to kind of, you know, see the negative, see the things that could go wrong at a much greater frequency. So for some people, that may be the case. And then there's a third group of research that says, and here I'm just going to be a geek for a second, you'll never remember this term, is it something to do with your 
dorsal anterior cingulate cortex. Forget that term. (laughs) What does that mean? That's the part of your brain that processes information and helps you to make decisions. And for some people, there's differences going on in that part of their brain. So why am I telling you this? If you're a procrastinator, it's unlikely you've got a battle between your chief exec and your emotion brain, your amygdala's big, and you've got this issue with your information processing. What it does show is that it's complex, right? We're all different, we're all unique, and we can't do a slapdash, one-size-fits-all discussion around procrastination because it could be so varied for everyone. We then haven't spoken about, for example, people that might have obsessive-compulsive disorder, somebody that might have ADHD, then look at neurodiversity and go, how does that play into procrastination? Yes, I was actually wondering if procrastination is linked to any other personality traits or any other issues that people might have going on? (laughs) Or can anyone procrastinate? If you're going to talk about personality traits, the most common model to talk about personality is the big five. I don't know if you've heard of the big five before, Antonia, but the acronym for the big five is OCEAN, and I'm doing this from memory, so if I pause and take a breath, it's because my brain's sinking. So O is openness, how open are you to new experiences? C is conscientiousness. You know, how hard do you work, I suppose? How committed to the cause? How much can you just get on with things? Build habits, for example. High conscientiousness is the number one personality trait linked to good health, right? Because you've probably got really conscientious health habits in your life. E is extroversion. So how extroverted are you? A is agreeableness. So how easy are you to get along with? How flexible are you? How much do you slip in and manage well? And N is neuroticism, which is, I suppose, more your anxiety uh, component to your Mm -hmm. personality. Well done, Jackie. Nailed it. Nailed it. (laughs) See, the memory is a skill of mine. Conscientiousness is the personality trait linked to procrastination or the flip side, really. If you're low on the conscientiousness scale, you perhaps are more likely to procrastinate. Or if you're high on the conscientiousness scale, you're pretty unlikely to procrastinate. Less likely, I should say. That's the more accurate term. So from a personality perspective, it's quite interesting to go, where do I sit along those lines? How conscientious am I across my life? For example, am I conscientious with my exercise? Am I conscientious with what food I put in my body? Am I conscientious around my routines of how clean I keep my house? Am I conscientious around how well I stay in touch with my friends? Am I, you know, like, look at that conscientiousness trait across your life and that may give you some insight into yourself. You're saying no, Antonia. Have you got a messy house? Oh my gosh. Yeah. I find it very difficult to keep my house tidy. Nigh on impossible. Pre-children, was that the same? It's gotten significantly worse, but yeah, even pre-children, it's not a huge priority. I'm one of those do a whip around before anyone comes over kind of people. Okay. See, I'm the opposite in terms of I would live in a show home. And so when I had children and it's quite difficult to live in a show home, because children create mess, that's something I find very difficult. That is tough. So I have a constant battle with myself about how much I clean and how much I put things away. Because anyone that has kids out there know that you do it and within five minutes it's destroyed. Yes. So do you wait till the end of the day? And so like my frontal lobe would say to me, Jackie, just clean up at the end of the day. But my emotion is like, I can't do it. You need to put it away. I cannot look at this mess all day. Mm, So, you know, so the conscientiousness in me is strong. And again, like everything, it's not just being conscientious is a positive trait and being not conscientious is a negative trait because whilst I really admire that you would have a really tidy house, 
that stresses you out, whereas I have a messy house, but less stress. And I suppose along with that, if you're somebody with high self-discipline, if you're somebody that's very persistent with what you do and you can work through problems and you can keep going even when things are tricky, if you've got a high sense of personal responsibility of wanting to deliver on what you've said you're going to deliver, for example, you're probably less likely to procrastinate. So from that perspective, they're the traits that would lead to non-procrastinators versus procrastinators. I suppose if we look at this through another lens, there's lots of discussion in academia and fluff pieces when you Google procrastination around what's the link between, I suppose, some forms of mental illness and procrastination. So if you're anxious, if you're experiencing depression, are you more likely to procrastinate? The answer is you probably do have a higher chance because mood is highly linked. And again, is it causal or is it a correlation? Who knows? I don't think we can say they're causal factors. But if you're worried or if your mood is flat, like if you've got no motivation and your mood is flat and you're finding it hard to get out of bed or you've lost your joy in life, like of course you're going to procrastinate more, right? Because Emotion drives behavior. So if you've got motivation, that means it's probably more likely to engage you in the task to get it done. If you're driven from a sense of wanting to feel proud, that will might maybe get you into the task and get you completing something. If you're driven by a sense of being loyal to the cause, that might get you started on a task. And like if you're experiencing depression and those emotions are just low or flat because of a depression, well then yeah, of course, it's more likely you're going to procrastinate during that period of time. But we also need to remember that people with depression aren't necessarily depressed for their whole life. They may have a period of depression But they also, I hope, have lots of periods where they're not experiencing depression. So again, just because you procrastinate when you're experiencing a depressive episode doesn't mean you're always a procrastinator. Also, I think, Antonia, if you look at, for example, people that might experience OCD or obsessive compulsive disorder, you could link that to the perfectionism stuff, right? If I want things to be really done well, if I have this drive for perfectionism, which OCD is an anxiety disorder, you know, again, that makes sense that some people might put it off and not start because they don't feel like they can do it perfectly. Yeah. One of my questions was, why is it so difficult to start something? Just the sitting down and starting, which is really difficult. And even if it is something that I think I will enjoy doing, there's still a part of me that just doesn't want to do it. <laughs> okay. So so question then, is it because there's something in the moment that you actually want to do more? Even if you're going to enjoy something, Are you doing something else that gives you better satisfaction, gratification, pleasure, joy right now? Yeah, possibly. Even if I know I'll sort of enjoy it or it's meaningful to me, the work might be quite hard. (laughs) But it's never as hard once I've started. You know, it's just the decision to sit down and start. And so then you go, okay, well, part of being a human is we have what's called a present bias. We are much more accurate in knowing how we feel now than being able to gauge how we feel in the future state. One researcher almost talks about your future self as almost like a stranger. You kind of can cognitively think about how you might feel, but you don't feel it as you feel stuff now. And so a positive side to procrastination could be that actually you are doing stuff that you enjoy more now. So actually, I'd rather go and play tennis than sit down and do that assignment because it is good for my health and it brings me joy and I'm engaging with people. Well, that's a positive for your mental and physical health, right? Actually, I would rather go and have a coffee at the cafe, then sit and clean my bathroom. 
that is more pleasant for me, perhaps. And so a positive, maybe it's enabling you to engage in stuff that really brings you joy and really boosts your positive emotion. And so there are great benefits to positive emotion on your physical and mental health. I suppose you have to weigh up then how much are the positive emotions now benefiting you compared to the stress and strain you put yourself under if you then go and have to complete that task. So this is not a one-size-fits-all, right? If you don't clean your bathroom, what's the worst thing is that you're going to be in a gross bathroom. Oh, yuck. You know, I couldn't manage that. Jackie cannot ah! cope with that thought, even if that thought ah. is sending her into conditions. And I'm sitting here being like, oh, yeah, I'd probably be right. Yeah. <laughs> I was raised by a mother that cleans the basin and the toilet every day, twice a day. Like, that's oh, how I was raised, see? Okay. So, like, okay, so that makes me feel, ugh. Yeah, that's a strong template for you. But for other people, like, not a big deal. But, you know, if I go out with my mates tonight, rather than completing my work assignment, potentially that has larger negative effects if you don't have the document that your boss required on their desk tomorrow morning. You know, like, so I think every situation is different. Potentially, Antonia, maybe you are just really amazing at going, what's valuable to my life? I'm going to invest my time in high priority tasks. And so maybe procrastination for you in some instances is actually I'm putting that task off because there are things that are more beneficial to me and my family and my work and I'm going to invest in high value tasks. And so I will put off and procrastinate on the low value tasks. And that actually could be seen as good task utilisation. Well, thank you. It's a very generous perspective and I um, I wish it was the case and perhaps sometimes it is, but when it's not and I just wish that I was able to get on with things quicker, what can I and other fellow procrastinators do to help with our procrastination issue? So I'm first going to ask you, is it about the fact that you've got a lack of good habits. So like there's three options, right? Are you procrastinating because you don't have good habits in place? Are you procrastinating because you've got an intolerance to a certain emotion like anxiety or boredom or fear? Or do you have flawed thinking? And the flawed thinking would be, I can't start unless it's perfect. The flawed thinking would be, I'm not good enough to do this. The flawed thinking would be, I'll have enough time at the end. Like, this is a quick and easy task when, in fact, it's complex and going to take you a lot of time. So I think it's quite important to go, why am I procrastinating? And let's just do live therapy on Antonia Preble. Antonia, is it a lack of good habits? Is it an emotion, regulation, concern around needing to calm? Or is it a thinking pattern flaw? I think, to be honest, I relate to all three of them. Like, let's take the example of meditation. I know that meditating in general is just such a wonderful thing to do. And I know specifically for me, it is really good for me. When I am meditating regularly, I'm calmer, I'm happier, my day goes smoother. I can really feel tangible benefits in my life. However, and I know that if I did that for 10 minutes a day, 10 minutes a day, every day, that would just have a significant impact. However, I find it really difficult to, I'll say, fit it into my day, but I know it's not a time management issue. So question to you then, is it, I don't have a habit and routine in place or is there an emotion component stopping you? I think it's both. I don't have a habit and routine in place. I've never really been a routine person, which I think is partly my personality, but a lot to do with my job because I'm always doing different things 
every day and my hours are never the same and I'm always going to different locations. So I find it very hard to put structure and routines in place. And also my personality loves novelty. So both of those things mean I don't have a lot of habit and a lot of routine, but the emotion regulation absolutely is a part of it. Like Oh, and another element with meditation specifically is I find it harder to do things that don't have an immediate tangible result. You know, nothing really happens after meditation apart from you've done it. <laughs> so yeah, okay. I resist that. And I think, yeah, there is a bit of uh, fear, I'd say, around sitting still. I think fear is what's underneath it. I'd probably first describe it as boredom or a little bit of like irritableness or just fidgetiness yeah and yeah and it's hard to stop that and I think probably what's under that is fear of just sitting there yeah and I won't give you deep life therapy on a podcast Antonia but my second follow-up question to that would be if you and I were in a room together on our own not with microphones in our face yeah would be well what is the fear of yeah because I don't buy that it's fear of sitting still there's got to be a deeper fear to that right like that might be the surface worry But my wonder would be, what are you afraid to discover if you sit still? Totally. And I think that is worthy to contemplate and and investigate. Yeah, But if we take those two elements and go, I'm an actress, I've got an absolutely irregular patterned life, then I would say, how in advance do you know your schedule, Antonia? Like, can you tell me what your schedule is next week? And knowing you for how long I've known you now, I think the answer probably is yes. Most of the time you can tell me what your schedule is going to be next week. She's looking at me like, no, Jackie, I can't. Uh, yeah, no, I, I often can't. can't. I wish I could say I can, but I, like I sometimes can, but I often can't. And I know that sounds ridiculous, but okay. yeah, I often Could can't. you tell me what your schedule is going to be the following day? Yeah, I could. So the night before, yes. would you know what you're doing the yes. following day? Yes, okay. I could. So when you hopped into bed at night, could you say, I'm going to find a time in my day tomorrow where I've got 10 minutes to meditate? This is a really important well-being tool for me. I actually know the benefits are going to be X, Y, and Z. And so you could look in your day and go, okay, I'm going to find a 10-minute window. I'm going to coordinate with Dan when he's got the kids. Or if I'm sitting in the car before I go into the production studio or, you know, where can I do that? And and the night before, could you lock in a time for yourself? Is that a feasible thing to do? Yes, I could. Okay. That's feasible and that sounds really sensible as well. Yeah. So part of the, if it's a absence of good habits is, I suppose, engineering the conscientiousness part of you. Like if it's not natural, you kind of got to put things in place to do that, right? So is it about scheduling things in? If you're someone that just says, like, I procrastinate on going to the gym, you know, like I need to go in the mornings, but I find it really difficult to get up. Well, sleep in your gym clothes, like take away a barrier, you know, like can you put things in place, routine them, identify your barriers and remove your barriers, you know, and if you can do that, that's really helpful. So for example, if you procrastinate over doing work tasks and you find that you are on social media all the time, we'll make a good habit by getting rid of the distractors, remove social media from your phone, you know, make sure that you only have to go and buy your desktop, you know, that makes it difficult or more difficult than to just slip off into social media world rather than doing your job. Can you go and work somewhere where there's less distractions? So is there a physical place you can go? Do you set yourself deep thinking time through the week if you're someone that really finds it, you know, hard to get into an assignment or a task? So, you know, do you have periods of time where you don't ever schedule meetings? That is literally your thinking time. So there's a component around habits, right? And I'm not saying that's the whole answer, but there is some use 
into having good habits in place. Then if you take the emotion side of this, Antonia, where you go, actually, I'm just a bit resistant or fearful or, you know, not certain around how I'm going to feel during a task, therefore I don't start. I think there are a number of things that we could do to look at and address that. So now let's look at the emotional aspect of this, right? I can't get myself into a task because it's boring, I'm worried, I've got high expectations, whatever it is. A useful exercise is to visualise. Can you visualise for yourself how you might feel post-meditation? Let's just run with your example, Antonia. Sit for 10, 15 seconds and go, if I do this task, how am I going to feel and what's the benefits going to be? Can you bring that to mind? And hopefully you can visualise that. And you've said to me, look, you know, I'm happier, I'm calmer, blah, blah, blah. That boosts motivation, right? Visualising is a motivation enhancer. And so if you can do that before a task, how will I feel? What will the benefits be? Then that increases your likelihood that you may then go and engage in that task. Consequently, or alternatively, visualise for yourself what it will be like if you don't engage in that task. How will I feel? How will I be if I don't meditate? How will I feel? What will be the impact if I don't sit down and do this piece of work? What will it be like for my family if I never clean that bathroom? Oh, what will it? <laughs> you know, what will be the impact on myself if I don't get up and go to the gym? I don't know, like whatever it is, whatever you're finding it difficult to do, you can visualise the benefits and you can visualise the consequences if you don't engage with it. And the research has found that that has been quite a helpful way of trying to manage that emotional aspect of it. Would that be helpful? As I'm talking out loud, I'm just going to pause and take a breath. Yeah, really helpful. And I think because I do a lot of visualisation in my life for various things, but I only ever really do the positive side of it. But that's a really interesting and, and useful tool to visualise the counterpoint of that as well. I can really sense how that would be pretty motivating. It is really interesting, I think. And sometimes people call them pre-mortems when you do work, like do the pre-mortem on it, what could mm -hmm. go wrong. Yeah. You know, like come up with the challenges. And for some people, especially those that are logical thinkers, if you can do that visualisation of the challenges or the pitfalls or the holes that might be there or the downsides if you don't engage in something, that can be enough to really get people going. I think also if you're somebody that is anxious or worried or bored or you're just like not very good at tolerating icky emotions or unpleasant or uncomfortable emotions, then part of that is how do you just actually self-soothe and self-regulate in the moment? So again, I've spoken about this on this podcast before and I've said that self-compassion is a growing research field in psychology. And in a nutshell, it means you speak kindly to yourself. You speak to yourself as if you would speak to your partner, your children, your best friend, your peer at work. And so if you can, you know, say to yourself, I see that you're worried. I see that you're fearful. I see that you're disinterested. I see that you're disappointed. I see like whatever it is, whatever the emotion is that you are feeling about having to do that task, can you name it? Can you rate it? <laughs> you know, when I come up against this task, I'm four out of 10 anxious. I'm nine out of 10 pissed off that I've been asked to do this. I'm six out of 10 got FOMO that I'm missing out on my something else I want to do. Like name it. 
Make it very real to yourself what you're feeling because Again, this is a big saying for me, if you name it, you tame it. If you can actually be really clear about what you're feeling, that is a regulation technique in itself. And then if you can add the compassion to it, like, hey, it's understandable that this is boring for you. God, most people would find this task boring. Hey, it's understanding that you want to do a good job and that you are feeling anxious or a sense of trepidation or a sense of overwhelm about this task. You know, like, I get it, Jackie. Like, most people that would have been handed this probably would find that overwhelming or would find that daunting or wouldn't want to engage in it. So you just like everyone else, be kind to yourself. And if you can do that self-compassion bit, if you can do the emotion regulation bit, what happens is that your amygdala starts to wind down. And when that winds down or when you get calmer, your chief executive comes back online. That's that forehead bit of your brain. And it's that forehead bit of your brain that needs to go, okay, let's look at this task and let's go, where do I start? Let's look at this task and work out how I can chunk it. Chunk it means you break it down. I look at this task and I go, what deadline am I actually going to give myself? Like what's reasonable? Let's think really clearly about how long this is going to take and how much time I need. And actually research finds that short deadlines, like a week, is much more impactful than giving yourself a month. That's research from Otago University. Actually, give yourself a shorter deadline. That makes sense to me. Yeah, longer deadlines, you just put it off. Shorter deadlines, you're more likely to engage. But you need your frontal cortex, right? So if you're sitting there in an emotional state, it's pretty hard to really engage clear thinking when you're not calm. And so that name it to tame it or name it, rate it, tame it, that ability to be kind and hold compassion to yourself, they are skills, tools, evidence-based that help you calm and engage your rational, clear thinking processes. If you're somebody that is really aware that you've got big feelings there or feelings there, you know, can you address them, name them and do something to calm them? Yes, I'm with you. It's all sounding fantastic. Is there anything else that those procrastinators can do to help? Then I think, are you someone that gets hooked by your thinking? right? So are you hooked by flawed thinking, which might be that you ruminate. And the word ruminating comes from like chewing the fat, right? Cows chewing the fat, ruminating. Are you someone that ruminates on your thoughts about how you're not good enough or how it's a stupid task, why have I been given it? Or someone else should be doing this or it's not worthy of my time or I'm wasting my life doing stuff like this or, you know. Like, <laughs> I've definitely had a few of those that, thoughts. <laughs> are you someone that is stuck in your negative thinking and you're going over and over and over and over your negative thoughts? And then I'd say, well, how do you shift that thinking? You can help to shift thinking by, again, being aware of what your thoughts are. Writing helps to shift thoughts. So writing is an emotion regulation strategy and a thinking, you know, strategy. So can you journal about it? Does it shift your thinking? Do you know where some of those stories come from? So just say you're the perfectionist and you've got this thought around, I can't do anything unless it's perfect. Where does that thought come from? And can you do some work on yourself about how helpful that thought is? Mm. Because I haven't met anyone that does anything perfect all the time, ever. I don't think anyone exists like that unless you are a bot (laughs) or an AI machine and they malfunction, right? So, you know, then it's about how can I, again, have some understanding for where that comes from. Is there some inner child in me that is projecting that thought process? If you haven't listened to our inner child episode, please go and listen to our inner child episode, (laughs) then come back and continue this recording. (laughs) 
do I have a leader at work that's nasty, nasty, you know, that that is really harsh? And so I've got these worried thoughts because I'm actually working for someone that's really tricky and difficult. Like, you know, again, can you work out where the thoughts are coming from? And then either can you shift the thinking? If you're the perfectionistic type of person, can you get your thinking to like 80% is good enough? I will own perfectionistic thought. I've been a perfectionist in my life, but I've worked on that. I have worked on the fact that actually that perfectionistic need to be perfect is harmful to me more than anyone else. It puts stress and strain on me. And I have got myself over time and by gathering evidence, like going to try things out and then to follow up and see how it works to the point where I go, 80% is good enough. And I'm probably now at the point where I'm like, 75% is good enough. (laughs) You know, like take an example of I used to not send emails because I would sit and make sure my wording is right and could anyone read into this and have I crafted this well? Once I've shifted my thinking to 80% is good enough, I've then changed my behaviour. I write the email, I read it once, I hit the send button. Like it just, it goes. That's now a habit. So you can see now how all my skills of is this a habit? Is this emotion? Is this thinking? Like all the skill sets start to intertwine, Antonia. So when I can work out my thinking, if I can try and shift my thinking or have a new way of thinking about it, can I then change my behavior to reflect that? Maybe it's, I just need to start is a new thought process that I start. As long as I start, it's better than not starting at all. Can I get my thinking to that point of view? Or I'm going to invest my time in the things that actually have impact and meaning on me rather than getting caught up in the small things. Can I look at where my thoughts are going and try and find some helpful thought processes for me? I feel like I've lost you. Have I lost you or are you still with me? I'm absolutely still with you. And I was just thinking how this discussion is quite a lovely place to end our series as a whole because it feels like we're coming back to really similar ideas and themes and values that we've talked about the whole way through, which is self awareness fundamentally the first thing we need to do is have consciousness about what is going on and then investigating what is beneath the thing that we initially were interested in right like there's always so much more at stake be curious yeah be curious we are complex beings and there is so much more going on than just the thing we initially look at and again what I love about this as with so many other topics is at the root of it, it seems like it almost always comes back to self-compassion. Like that is this big lesson that we continually have to keep learning and reminding ourselves to just be kind, have compassion for ourselves. It's not easy being a human in the world. (laughs) It's wonderful on many levels, but it's challenging on many levels. And if you're someone who wants to continue to be curious and to continue to learn and grow and develop and be the best version of yourselves, whatever that might mean, it really comes down to being kind to yourself, which I think is a lovely thing, but not easy all the time. Absolutely, Antonia. And so I suppose if we end day with, if you want some high level clickbait solutions to procrastination, then my short answer would be, what's the task? Break it down into small chunks Just start, because once you start, you might find you're into it. Remove distractions from around you. You can find that advice Googling procrastination. Mm -hmm. And for some people, you know, that absolutely will help and will be enough. For others, if that is not enough, then it really is about what's underlying, what is going on for you. Go and discover about yourself. Learn about yourself. Work out what's going on for you. 
and then, you know, try and find some ways to calm you. As Antonia says, just hold kindness to yourself. Like you're doing a bloody good job, whatever you're doing. And the fact that you want to make a difference or that you want to shift this is a great start, right? Like you're very aware you want to do things differently. And that is a really large start in the right direction. So give yourself a pat on the back for that. Absolutely. And then really go, how can I shift those feelings? How can I be more gentle on myself? How can my thinking be useful and helpful for me rather than punitive or critical or hold me back? And if you can come at it from that lens, then the psychologist in me would say, I think you've got a much better chance of shifting the procrastination habit than just coming at it from a time management perspective. That makes so much sense. Thank you so much once again, Jackie, for your beautiful wisdom and insight and compassion. I have really got a lot out of this. And yeah, I love that everything kind of all just comes back to the same kernel, which is we just need to know ourselves and be kind to ourselves. And like you said, if people are already on this journey and wanting to change, then that's a really great sign. And I think even by listening to this episode suggests that people are already on that path and wanting to make some changes. And I really hope to everyone listening that you have got a lot out of this. And if you have listened to other episodes, thank you so much. We have loved putting these episodes and these conversations together for you. These are the issues that Jackie and I wanted to talk about because it's the things that affect us and what we are also really interested in and what Jackie and her work sees the need for in the world. So we're really, really thrilled that it is now out in the world and that you've been able to come on this journey with us. And we will definitely be back. (laughs) So thank you for listening in so far. Jackie, thank you so much for everything that you have brought to our listeners and all the information and insight that you've been able to offer. Yeah, let's go off and start on season two, shall we? Thank you so very much. I hope you felt like you were sitting in the lounge room with Antonia and I or around the kitchen table because that was the vibe we wanted to create. We are two mates having chats about things that we come up against or people we love come up against. And uh, we hope you feel like you're intimately sitting with us over your cup of tea or your good South Australian shiraz. And if it was Jackie's house, the table would be really clean. And if it was my house, there'd probably be a few crumbs. So when you think about it, you can just choose whose house you'd like to be at. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, kakite anō. See you later. that was what matters most for this week thank you so much for listening if you did enjoy this week's episode it would be great if you could rate review and subscribe to this podcast as that helps let other people know that we're here thanks again see you next time